Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to be, verses 12 through 26, if you want to turn in your Bibles there. I hope you brought your Bibles so you can follow along with us. They want to acknowledge Jacob and Brianna have a, this whole wing over here is like their family. So um, after the f- two, first two rows, back like two or three rows, is Jacob and Brianna's family. So feel free and please uh, greet them after the service and, and welcome little Ruth Ann to our church family um, this morning. All right, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, as we continue in what is our fourth installment in what is going to be a lengthy series through the book of Acts, we come to um, a most interesting text this morning. Second half of chapter 1, we'll read the whole section, follow along your Bibles as I read out loud. Then they, that is the apostles, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers... The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired, that is Judas he's talking about, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Aren't you glad you came today? And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry in apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. This sends the reading of God's holy and errant infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of God stand forever. All right, let's give us some context before we dive in. Let's review just a little bit. Verse 1 through 5 is the prologue for Acts, talking about the, the reason, the purpose of the book. Luke is giving historical evidence of the work of all that Jesus began to do and all that he continues to do so that we may be assured in our faith and empowered towards mission. And what we see in verses 6 through 8, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, is that Jesus has given his disciples, his apostles, this grand commissioning. A commissioning to be the vision for the kingdom of God, that God's kingdom would come to earth, and that their role in that is to be eyewitnesses, not just in their neighborhoods, not just in the surrounding areas, but to the ends of the earth, a grand task. And then, after he gives them this commissioning, Jesus ascends up into heaven. Glory cloud takes him, he enters into the throne room of heaven, he sits as king of kings 
and Lord of Lords from which he rules and reigns right now. And as he does that, or after he does that, and the disciples are sitting there looking up in the sky, two angels show up and they say, why are you looking in the sky? Get out of here. What are you waiting for? So that leads us and brings us to the second half of Acts 1, where we find that the uh, apostles have gone back to Jerusalem. And what we find there is that they will get to now wait, not just one day or two days, but 10 days for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Passover is 50 weeks before the Feast of Weeks. That's when Pentecost is. Since the Lord has been taken to heaven 40 days after the resurrection, which is when Passover happened, we are, by our math, say that there's now 10 days left between these two holidays, Jewish holidays, and so they must wait for 10 days for the Spirit to come. Now, if you are the disciples and the apostles and the two angels have come in and shushed you off to Jerusalem as if, like, there's some urgency here, you better get there, as if they may miss the coming of the Holy Spirit if they don't get to Jerusalem, and then you have to sit around and wait for 10 days when possibly your life is at stake, and here it is that you've been called to this grand mission, you would kind of, you'd be a little bit antsy. You might be even a little bit frustrated. We are, so often, so many of us are, we are wired to be people of action. We expect immediacy in this life, and yet the Holy Spirit, we sleep, he should come at once, now. We don't like this idea of waiting. We believe that we should be getting power by the Holy Spirit now to preach right away. We need this now, not 10 days from now. There shouldn't be any delay, but God makes them wait. Why is that? God does he does interesting things when we are called to wait. And actually, this is a pattern. What we see in the New Testament, so many of the things we see in the New Testament are repeats of what happened in the Old Testament. There's this another kind of critical juncture in the life of God's people when the people of Israel have entered into the promised land in which God calls them to wait there. See, after 40 years, kind of a long hike, don't you think? They'd probably be a little bit excited about finally entering into the promised land. They get into the promised land, and God has said, I'm going to give you this land. We're going to lead, rush out, all, push out all the peoples of this land of Canaan. They're going to be pushed out, and I'm going to go before you, and you're going to have victories in battle. And yet they cross over the Jordan River, and then God says, no, wait. No, wait. I want you to take a couple days to consecrate yourselves. And not only consecrate yourselves, but apparently the people of Israel, for those born in the wilderness, they had not been faithful to give the covenant, the sign of the covenant to their men. And so they hadn't given the sign of circumcision to so many of their men. And so they crossed over the Jordan, and instead of going into battle, they circumcised all the men who had yet to be circumcised. Now let me ask you this. If you're preparing for battle, and someone comes to you and says, hey, let's have a mass circumcision, you'd probably think this is not the best way to prepare for what God has for us. And yet when we wait, God has reasons for that because it makes us weak. And God has his means of preparing us in that weakness for something great, preparing us for the next step in the journey. And there is amazing things about to happen in Acts chapter 2, and there's amazing things that will happen for the people in the book of Joshua as God goes out before them and does battle for them. But he often leads us into seasons of waiting but what we find in, in the, here in the second half of Acts chapter 1 is that even though God has them wait for 10 days, that they are not inactive 10 days for the people of God. Instead, we find that there is great activity because what they do with their waiting is exactly what you and I ought to do when God calls us to seasons of waiting, and that is prepare for whatever is next, even if we don't know what it is. 
Now, if you don't know what it is, it means there's going to be some pretty, it's going to be pretty generic. And that's actually what we see in chapter one, that there are some general ways in which you prepare for whatever God has for you next. So you, you are, what are you waiting on in your life? Some of you are, are waiting to get married. Some of you feel like God is distant from you and you're waiting to, to experience his presence in fullness again. Some of you are waiting for a child to stop rebelling. Some of you are waiting for that husband to come home. You're waiting. How do we prepare? What we see this morning is a church in waiting, and so let's look at how they prepare for whatever God has for them next. Four points this morning as we walk through this text. The first three are rather simple, and the fourth is a little bit nutty. First, first they simply obeyed. Obeyed. When you don't know what God, what you've got, you want God, what's next, or what you think God was going to have for you to do specifically, yeah, it's pretty good advice simply to obey. Simply obey. What we see in verse 12, right here, right out of the gate, in response after the ascension, after the angels have said, get out of here, the people, the apostles, it says they go back to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Now that is in direct obedience, not only to the angels, but what Jesus has said in verses 4 and verse 5 of Acts chapter 1, where he says, wait for the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. And so that's what they do. Now listen, if you're the apostles and Jesus pieces out, he goes to the, he ascends into heaven, that the first thought may not have been, let's go back to Jerusalem. You might recall that Jesus was killed there about 40 days earlier. And so that is probably, you know, heavy on their minds. Not to mention that, what we see after the cross and after the resurrection is that the pattern of the disciples is where they're like, well, we don't see Jesus, we're out of here. In fact, even like the road to Emmaus account where, where Jesus comes and confronts two of the men walking to Emmaus, they're probably going home. They're like, Jesus is dead. I'm out of Jerusalem. We're scattering. We see the disciples scatter in various ways. That that would be the natural proclivity, and yet that's not what they do. Instead, they go and hunker down in Jerusalem, just as God had commanded them to do. And I want to simply say this, when you are trying to seek out what is God's will for your life, or you're wondering what God's will for your life, or you're in a season of waiting, the best thing to do is to focus on simple, clear obedience. What has God's word told me to do? You're waiting for a spouse. Listen, so often, these kind of things, we we create all kinds of rules for ourselves. I really, I'm, I feel like I'm really, I'm waiting for a spouse, and I feel like, this is what man does. I feel like God just wants me to not date anybody for a while. Well, God's word has not said that. He has not said that. How about you go back to simply what God's word has said, which is why don't you be somebody who loves God and loves your neighbor and serves faithfully? And don't come up with all these man-made rules. Man-made wisdom that we don't necessarily need. But this is often what we do. We're in a state of waiting. Maybe God wants me to do this, this, and this before he'll give me what I want. No, simple obedience. You see, God has revealed his will to us. It's called his law. It's called his commands. We don't necessarily know what there's God's secret will. That is his decretive will. This is how the Bible talks his will about God's will in, in multiple ways. But what will ultimately and evidently, inevitably come to pass is God's decretive will. Where he says, this is happening. But then there's what is called his revealed will. The will that says, this is what I want you to do. And the leaders to follow that will. God is not a magic eight ball that we shake with our various wisdom or, or practices. It's just saying, if I just do this, this will show me what's coming up next. No, God simply says, will you obey? Will you obey? And trust that I will provide moving forward. So that's the first thing. That's pretty simple and that's pretty clear, right? Obey. Second, 
They prayed. And what they did to prepare themselves for whatever was next, as they waited, they prayed. Now, if you look at this in context, and we see this in verse 14, that's what they devoted themselves to. But then context, urgent, desperate prayer totally makes sense, right? And verses 6 through 8, Jesus gives them this, this great commission. And the commission is not simply, hey, will you be a witness to the guy next to you? The, the commission is, hey, you 12 and a few of the people around you, I want you to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's a pretty big deal. And if, if someone came to me and said, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, your mission in life is to reach the rest of the world. Oh, okay. And then Jesus goes, oh, by the way, I'm piecing out of here. If you were the disciples, you'd be going, um, could we get some help down here? Some help down here. We're supposed to go to the end of the world, right? We, there's no internet, no radio. Most of us are illiterate probably. Like this is going to be rather difficult. But here's the pattern of what we see in scriptures. And so what they do is they pray. And what do they pray for? They pray for the Holy Spirit, most likely. And the pattern that we see in the scriptures is that what God does is he makes a promise. He says this, I'm going to give you this. And then he leads you to a place in your life where you feel your desperate need for what he has already promised to give you. So that you pray for it, and then God gives you what he has promised you in response to your prayers. That you follow that logic. He says, I'm going to give this to you. Now I'm going to put you in a place in your life where you desperately need this thing that I'm going to give you. So pray desperately for that thing that I'm going to give you. And then I'm going to answer with a yes, because I've already promised that I'm going to give it to you. And that is what they're doing here. Jesus has said, I'm going to give you, how has he said, what is the power by which they're going to go to the ends of the earth? By the power of the Holy Spirit. So what do you think they prayed for? They prayed desperately for the Holy Spirit to come upon them in power. So they may be enabled to reach the world. Now listen, an obedient church in the midst of its waiting, this is historically what they always do is they go back to the simple things, the ordinary means of grace like prayer. And it, it, it doesn't take much of a, but a cursory look at the history of revivals throughout church history to see that this is where revivals, the big next thing, starts. It is not, it is not big program. Hey, we're going to have this huge program. It is going back to the simple things. It's going back to prayer. What we see is that so often in church history is when the church has entered into the doldrums when there doesn't appear to be much power, when those who are longing for God to do something are in waiting, it is when God's people turn back to prayer and plead for him to not simply give raindrops, but to give thunderstorms of his grace upon the church that things begin to happen. Let me just give you a couple examples from the past couple hundred years. One is in the Outer Hebrides. In the Outer Hebrides are the islands around Scotland. It's kind of their fishing villages and little farming villages outside Scotland, the Scotland area. And in 1949, soon after World War II, revival broke down in that group, in that area. So that thousands and hundreds of thousands of people entered into the church and came to know Jesus in that area. Now, how did it start? It started with two sisters in their 80s. One was named Blind Peggy and her sister Christine. They were in their 80s and were too infirmed in order to get to their, even their local church. And so what they began to do, they also had a difficult time sleeping at night. And so what they began to do is from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. each for two nights a week, they would pray for five hours for God to bring power to their parish. Well, eventually, their pastor, their young pastor, their young parish pastor came to the house to do a good you know, pastoral call. And he's talking to them, and they're very concerned about the 
the, the state, the spiritual state of their area. And so they suggest to him that he should institute a two-night prayer meeting each and every week. And like a good young pastor who listens to the 80-year-olds in his church, he said, that sounds like a great idea. And so they begin to institute a prayer meeting two nights a week in the evenings, and it starts out small, but then it grows and it grows and it grows until a place in which the whole church in that area appeared to be dead was now alive for Jesus Christ. Great work of the Lord. It began with two 80-year-olds infirmed in their bedroom praying for God to do something. You know, God did this before the Civil War in our own country as well. Three years before the Civil War, our country, we had about 30 million people in the United States at that time, in 1859. And what what was found in about a a two-year period, two years from 1858 to 1859, two million people professed faith in Christ Jesus and entered the church. Now, this is an interesting fact. You can talk to Dan Williams if you maybe, you know, we're in like, you know, fact-checking mode, aren't we? Right? Fact-checking mode. But there is, there is a pattern in American history. Revival leads to war. <laughs> there was revival before the War of Independence and there was revival before the Civil War. Now, so maybe we should be careful about praying for revival. But usually, actually the reason, like, because many of the people who came to believe in 1859 and 1858 were people in the North. And they began to realize that the gospel had effect for the way that they lived their lives. The two million people, how, how did it start? It started with a 46-year-old businessman named Jeremiah Lanfear. He lived in New York City. New York City was a cesspool of sin and degradation. Do you like those words? Pulling out the old King James-type words. That's kind of how it was. It was disgusting in New York City. And he decided that he longed to see revival happen in that place. And so he put up a sign at a church near downtown in the business district of Manhattan. And he said, at this time on Wednesdays at noon for one hour, we're going to pray. And invited anybody who would pass by to enter that, that place and pray. The first day, no one came. For 30 minutes, Jeremiah Lanfear prayed for himself. And then about 30 minutes in, six men came. The next week, 20 came. The next week, 30 came. The next week, 100 came. So that within six months, 10,000 people on Wednesdays for an hour were praying to the point that a revival broke out not only in New York City, but in Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Washington, D.C. Two million people eventually professed faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Because someone got the harebrained idea that maybe it was a good idea that we would plead for the Holy Spirit to do something. Let me ask you this. We should ask ourselves this question. Separated by a gulf of 2,000 years of history is that if the early church found this desperate need, this urgent need to pray, are we in a place that's any less in need of revival? Are we in a place that's any less need? You know, we have not actually had a nationwide revival since 1906. A widespread revival that can be considered to be nationwide. Country is in desperate need of it. It's interesting when I go to Presbyterian meetings, meetings of our, the pastors of our denomination, of our region. What's interesting is the younger guys, we like to talk about our programs and what the exciting big number of things that are going on. And the old guys during prayer time, what they're always asking for is revival to fall. Maybe they've come to the place that in their youth, they tried all the programs and all the events and all the, the things of man's strength. And they finally have gotten to the place of just going, Jesus, if your spirit does not fall, it doesn't matter. We need revival to come. That's what they're praying for here. Although it's not revival, right? It's more like vival. As the church was starting out. Let me just say this, just as an aside. This also needs to be done corporately. 
What we see in Acts is that prayer, it, we, we like to think about prayer as being an individual thing. And that's nice. You got your prayer closet. Speak, you know, later on, we'll see people speaking in tongues on their, own, on their own. But we see primarily it's corporate prayer in Acts. But that's the power when two or three are gathered in my name. So we obey, we pray, and you also see that they studied. They prepared by studying, right? These are all pretty general, right? right? You learned this in Sunday school by the time you're five. You're supposed to obey. You're supposed to pray. You're supposed to read your Bible. Verse 15, 16, and 20. In those days, it says this, Peter stood up among the brothers. The coming all was about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture says blank. And then in verse 20, it says, For it is written in the book of the Psalms. He's quoting scripture. Then what we see in the passage is that what David is quoting here is from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 and talking about Judas. So he's referring back to God's word. And then what we find in, in, in Acts chapter 2, when, when the Holy Spirit falls and they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, Peter goes out and he preaches. Now, this is not a long sermon. I probably already preached longer than, than Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. It takes about a page, page and a half in your Bible. But what we find is that throughout that sermon... Peter is quoting and alluding to the Old Testament left and right. In Acts 2, we see that he quotes from Joel 2, Isaiah 32, Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 36, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. So let me ask you this. In that 10-day period between Jesus' ascension and the Pentecost falling, what do you think Peter was doing? The boy was in his Bible. And specifically, all those texts I just mentioned from Acts chapter 2 that he quotes and alludes to in his sermon are all about the Spirit. So Jesus said, hey, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And so what does Peter do? He goes back to the Old Testament and says, what is the Bible, what is God's word, what is it said about the Holy Spirit? Not only that, but Jesus has given them a whole new paradigm for understanding the Old Testament. Remember the road to Emmaus? I already mentioned it once. The road to Emmaus, Jesus shows up, hangs out with two guys, and he reveals to them how all the law and the prophets, the entirety of the Old Testament, is talking about him. It's a whole new paradigm for reading God's word. And you know what we see with Paul? You know, there's this great story of Paul. He gets converted, and then he gets lowered down in the basket, right? You remember this from Sunday school, right? He gets lowered down in the basket, and then Paul actually disappears for three years, You know what Paul does for three years? He goes and hangs out in the desert, we think. And what does he do? Here's a man who probably already had memorized all the Old Testament. Why has he got to study it? Because now he's got to go back and study the Old Testament in light of what Jesus has done. And so they studied. They studied God's word. Let me ask you this. Are you waiting for God to do something in your life? for, For many of us, our Christian walk has grown dry. And you are pleading for rain showers of God's grace, that you, you know in your head, like, okay, the truth is that God will never leaves me or forsake me, but you do not experience his presence in your life. It feels like he's far from you and distant from you, and you desperately need God to revive your soul, to fill you with his spirit, and so you're longing, you're crying out for that. When you know what you do while you wait for that? The best thing to do is to put the kindling of God's word around your soul. I mean, Parents, you got children, man, let me, let me just, I experienced this, hard-hearted kids, and you're pleading with, the whole, with, with God to do something in their life. And here's the problem, right? You can't give your kids the Holy Spirit. You can't save your children, so what do you do? 
You stack up the kindling of God's word around their hearts and around their minds. And then what do you do? You pray like crazy for the fire of the Holy Spirit to fall upon them. That's what you do. That's what you pray. You prepare in the season of waiting for revive God to revive your soul, to revive your children's soul, to revive your spouse's soul, to that family member. You pray and you give them the word of God. You stack it up thick around their heart and their mind. Would you do that? Would you prepare in that way? Think of this illustration for yourself as well. That doesn't fit. God's word is like ammo. Dump it. Dump it. It's an ammo dump in your heart and your soul and ask for the Holy Spirit to plead, plead for him to fall so that you just start pinging off all left and right in the mission of God. So that's the easy stuff. You obey, you pray, you study. Now we come to verses 15 to 26. And I want, in order to drive to our final point of what they did in preparation, I, I want to walk through this kind of graphic depiction of Judas's death and also this kind of interesting way of selecting his successor. And I'm going to explain what happened, kind of the nuts and bolts, and then I'm going to explain why, or drive to our point, why I think it's in here. The entire section, in, beginning in verse 15, is, has kind of a pretty clear outline to it. And here's how the outline goes. First is an introductory verse, verse 15, when Peter stands up. Then the first part of it, verses 16 through 19, deals with the vacancy created by Judas. It tells the story of how he died how, and, and, and that, that whole issue. Then in verses 21 through 26, the second section is talking about how they filled the vacancy left by Judas's death. Now there is a, 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 a hook verse that changes, that changes the trajectory, and that's verse 20, which has those two quotes from the Psalms, 69 and 109, in which um, the first Psalm is talking about how it was prophesied in the Old Testament that Judas would indeed betray Jesus, and then 109 points to the fact that we must fill his vacancy. So that's what's going on in these verses. That's a literary look. Now, there's a couple odd things going on here. First is we're seeing the problem. The problem is that Judas, in his death, has left a vacancy as an apostle. They're an apostle down. There were supposed to be 12, and now there's 11. They're down an apostle because Jesus is, or Judas's death. Now, quick review here, in case you don't know very much about Judas. Judas, well, even in the normal vernacular, we know what a Judas is, right? Judas is, was the one who betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He leads the uh, Jewish authorities to finding Jesus in the garden. He marks him with a kiss and betrays him with that kiss. But here's the thing. The death of Judas is significant because it points to the place of no return. You see, was Judas the only one around Jesus' Jesus's betrayal who sinned of the disciples? Was he the only one who abandoned Jesus in some way, shape, or form? No, they all did. Peter, three times, rejects and denies that he even knows Jesus. And yet what do we see coming after the cross and after the resurrection is that they repent and are restored to relationship with Jesus. And what we see here in Acts 1 is that Judas is, abandons the apostleship because he doesn't repent and he dies in his unrepentance. Judas, Judas isn't sent to hell because he betrays Jesus. Judas is sent to hell because he fails to repent of his betrayal of Jesus and dies in that unrepentance. And so what we see here is that they have this need. There is a gap in the apostleship. So that brings us to the second thing, the method upon which they choose Judas's successor. Now, for, let me walk through. There's three parts to it. First, they develop requirements to be a nominee. 
And the requirements were this. You had to be with Jesus and be a part of his ministry and have witnessed the major parts of his ministry, beginning with Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist all the way up to his ascension. In other words, to be an apostle, there is, there is a place of unique, a unique role for the apostles, for these 12 men, as original witnesses to all that Jesus did, as eyewitnesses. That's what's going on here. And after creating this, these uh, criteria, two men come forward. Two men come up, and they actually fit this criteria. And that's one, a man named Matthias, and then another guy named Joseph. Or as the text says, also Barsabbas, or also Justice. No wonder he lost the election, right? No one knew what his name was. Uh, it's like, oh, Joseph, is it Barsabbas? What's going on here? All right, so that's the first thing they do. They create criteria, and they, create the nom- they lead up to the nominees. The second is they pray. It's what it says in verse 24. They pray that God would do a work to reveal who the nominee is to be. And then we get to the interesting part. They cast lots to determine who the selection will be. They cast lots, and Matthias is the one chosen, and he's added to the twelve. They're, so what, what they're doing here, and it's actually it's a pattern that we see in the Old Testament. It's consistent. It's a method that's depicted in which on the priest's garment, they had something called the Urim and Thummim. And before the Spirit is given, in Old Testament, they would seek ways to define the will of God. And they would do it through casting lots. And so it would be something like this. It would, they would take pieces of cloth or kind of chipped pieces of, of, of clay, and they would write the names of the nominees, and they would put them in a, in a jar or a kind of a bag of some sort, and then they would shake that jar in that bag until one of the pieces came out, and whichever piece came out first, whoever's name was on it, that was the nominee. So here's the question. Should we determine God's will for our life in this method? Like this November, should you go into the voting booth and go, I can't decide. Heads, it's Trump. Tails, it's Hillary. Sorry, libertarians. Aleppo boy didn't make it. I'm going to flip my coin and up, oh, up, oh, there it is. That's who I'm voting for. Is this, is this how we should go about figuring out our decisions? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no, and here's why. F.F. Bruce, who's um, one of the most well-credentialed um, commentators in the book of Acts, he says this. He points that we never see in the New Testament again people making a decision by these means. By this means, and he says, here's why. Because this is before the Holy Spirit has been poured out in baptism. And in Romans 8, what is the Holy Spirit called? The Spirit of wisdom. And so, yes, brothers and sisters, yes, we, we, should, we should have good criteria. And we should pray for God to lead us. And then we say, Spirit of the living God, speak to us. Give us the wisdom to make this decision. We don't need to cast lots. So that's what they do. Now, here's the question. That's the what. That's the nuts and bolts. Why is this in here? Why do we care? And what does it lead to in regards to preparation? I think, one, Luke is talking about the underlying historicity of what's going on here. He's giving a historical account of what has happened to disciples. And when you lose one of the 12, that's a pretty, that's a pretty important thing. But I don't think that's it. I think there's something more going on here than simply giving a historical account because as we saw the first week, while Luke is being a historian, he's a theologian who's basing his theology on good history. So that's what he does. Let me ask you this. Is there why this is in your... Did you ever... Matthias is the one chosen, but do we ever hear about Matthias ever again? Never. He's never mentioned really ever again in the New Testament. And so what was the big deal? 
I mean, why do we have this outlined and given such uh, uh, highlighted within this section? The thing is, this is man is he's given this extraordinary office and it's never mentioned again. I think he's, here's the reason why: because it wasn't about the 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 man, but it was about the twelve. And it was about what God is doing in establishing for himself a new community. And this is your fourth point. Established. They established themselves. Let me drive this home this way. Let me start with the context here. That what is going on here, what we are seeing in Acts, the second half of Acts chapter 1, is a new community of God's people is being developed. What do we see here at the very beginning in verses 15 and 16? We see this list of names mentioned. There's the apostles by name are mentioned. And then we simply, it says the women. That means they're probably so prominent, these are probably most likely women who are so well-known in the early church, they don't even need to be named. That's how prominent they are. And then we see that Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers, James, the brother of Jesus, would eventually become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. By the way, this is just for you know, a side note. If, you know, some people, some Catholics particularly, would hold to the um, per- per- you know, perpetual virginity of Mary. Jesus had a bunch of brothers and sisters. It's hard that we don't think that that... That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, not all Catholics hold to that, and they have their reasons why, but I would say the text would kind of um, put that to the side. And then lastly, it says, not only Jesus' family there, and prominent women and the apostles, but then Luke gives this little, little aside, this little in brackets. And he says there was about 120 of them. Now, what's the point of that? Is that just kind of popped in his head? But here's the reason why. It was believed in rabbinic and uh, tradition that in order to have a community in which you would raise up and, and, and commit and have your own leadership, your own elders of your area, that you would need at least 120 people in order to have enough people to raise up your own leadership. In other words, you know how we have different kind of cities and townships and municipalities, and some actually have their own police forces and their own mayor, and others are unincorporated. Well, in other words, in order to be incorporated as a community and to be able to label and name your own leadership, you need at least 120. What is going on here in chapter 1 of Acts, in the second part, is God is establishing for himself a new community. And theologically, and the reason why the 12 is important is because that community is a fulfillment and is based upon the paradigm given to us in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, how was the people of Israel constituted? Around In what way? 12 tribes. 12 tribes. And so therefore, to be the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel, the new community must, be, must have 12 apostles. That is the necessity of what is going on here. That we cannot simply have 11. That wouldn't do. Because it, is, it, would not be the, it would not show that they are the fulfillment of old Israel. It would not show that they are these, the 12 that are set aside as unique. And what we actually see in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 through 30, it says, Luke says that the 12 will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. We need to have 12 men to hold these offices. So they need 12 tribes or 12 apostles to correspond with the 12 tribes of Israel. And here's the reason why. Because this new community is being reconstituted as the new Israel. It is not that old Israel has gone away and this is something entirely different. No, this, what was going on in Acts 1, is the fulfillment of all that was promised in the Old Testament. That what we see is the people of God, that even though reject God and God sends them into captivity, into enslavement, there are all these prophets that come and say, God will raise you up. He will create a great nation out of you once again. He will restore you, and it will be for the blessing of all peoples. And that is what is going on here. Now, what is the purpose of this? Why should we be established in this? 
Because what they're doing, what is happening is they're consciously establishing themselves in their new identity as new Israel. That this is who they are. Now think about why that would be important. How many of them are there? 120, maybe 500? This is a small little group. But this is not a group that is incongruous with the rest of history. This is a group that is the fulfillment of history. That they, that they as the church, we are not plan B, we are part of plan A. That God has always had a people, and that is his church is now his people in this world. And he only has he given them a sweet identity as his people has given them a great purpose and a great mission. And so, yes, we establish, we prepare ourselves for whatever's next by first studying God's word, second by praying, and third by obeying, but also understanding who we are. You know who you are? You see, people talk about this in sports terms. Like people talk about football teams, you know, if things are going wrong, well, they just lost, you know, are they a running team? Are they a passing team? Are they built on defense? They have no identity. They don't know who they are. And the preseason is when you establish an identity, and that's what's going on here. That what is they are consciously rooting themselves into the identity they have as new Israel, as God's people. What does it say later on in the New Testament? That they are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. This is who you are, brothers and sisters. You're a people called by God under his kingship. You are not something radically different from the old. You're, something, you're the fulfillment of it. That God is moving through his people, he always has, and he continues to do, through, to do so through his church. And the more that we understand that and know who God has called us to be, it will empower us and enable us to live into what God has called us to do and to be in this world. As his people, as his Israel, to take his kingdom to the ends of the earth. So, we'll end there. We finally get to the Spirit next week. After going through the nuts and bolts this week, let's pray. Lord, I totally confess, and I know it going in, that this is a base hit. This is um, odd. And for many of us, it's hard to grab hold of in the time and space that we have this morning. To take hold of this reality of who we are in Christ Jesus and who we are as your church that, Lord, we're not just simply a disparate body. The church is not merely just an event that we come to. But it's coming and being a part of the church, that we are a part of a people of all ages, that you are moving and working through to change this world. Lord, I pray that we would be a people as we wait for your spirit to come. And, Lord, I pray that we would, we would as we understand our identity and as we take hold of the mission that you have given us, which is to be eyewitnesses to the ends of the earth, that the grandeur of who you've called us to be and the greatness of the mission that you've called us to be a part of would make us desperate for your Holy Spirit to fall on this place. And that we would be a people who cry out for your Spirit to come, to come and not only baptize us in a saving way, but then fill us over and over and over again for the work of the mission. And so we ask for that. I ask that your spirit would come and fill us once again with new life, with joy in Jesus, that we would experience your gospel and fullness and love. And that from that, you would empower us to be your people, your Israel, to the ends of the earth for the mission you have given us. We ask this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.